Hello, my friends. Happy Sunday. Okay, I'm going to make this really quick before today's episode. I just want to let you know that we're breaking all the rules over at Healthful Pursuit. I decided to launch our cyber sale early this year. So when you go to healthfulpursuit.com slash shop, you can get 40% off everything in my shop, including meal plans, programs, the six-week keto weight loss program without the group coaching, all of the things, including happy keto body. So again, that's healthfulpursuit.com slash shop, and then load up your cart and use the coupon code cyber2020 for 40% off. Hello, my friend, you're listening to episode 281, where we're chatting all about meats. <laughs> the title of today's podcast episode kind of gave it away, right? Well, we're going to be delving really deep into the environmental impacts on conventional versus traditional systems and why it matters hugely to uh, the world that we have here. Uh, signs of poor quality Protein, you know all these signs. You've had them before. That livery, grass-fed beef taste, ugh, gross. Uh, white bubbles on your chicken or salmon, that dull color to your steak, not great. And sometimes we are spending oodles and oodles of money on grass-fed, grass-finished animal protein that really isn't and kind of tastes disgusting. So we're going to be going through why that is, how grocery works, the keywords to look for when you're shopping for meat, the use of the whole animal, why having bone broth that's high quality is really, really important, how to prepare organ meats. I mean, we go through it all. Our guest today is Anya Fernald. She's a co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. Belcampo operates 27,000 acres of organic farmland in California and processes its own livestock for sale in its own butcher shops and restaurants. Anya has two decades of leadership and entrepreneurship experience in high-quality organic and premium foods. Anya has been recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 100 Female Founders, one of the 40 under 40 by food and wine named Nifty 50 by the New York Times has been profiled in the New Yorker and the New York Times and has served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America on the Food Network since 2009. Anya's debut cookbook, Home Cooked, was released in spring 2019 with 10-speed press. You can tell just in today's interview how incredibly passionate Anya is about sharing the good word of animal human wellness. Oh, it is just, I love having guests on where their energy around things is just as palpable as mine is to more of my work. And when I get to interview people that are just so passionate about their work, it's just infectious. And at the time of this interview, so I interviewed Anya a couple of months before today's episode is going live. And I knew nothing about Belcampo before she came on. She shared everything, as you'll hear, with me for the first time and said, well, why don't I just send you a box of Belcampo? And I said, sure, yeah, I'd love to receive it. You know, I currently work, work with ButcherBox, but I'm always open as a Canadian. I know very good meat. <laughs> so I'm very picky about what I bring into my life. Sure enough, she sent me a box and you guys, it was so tasty. Oh my goodness, it was so tasty. She even sent me some suet that I could render into tallow myself, which sounds very complicated. It's actually super simple. I forgot how simple it was. I hadn't done it in a couple years. Um, the grass-fed, grass-finished beef is like out of this world amazing. Like it's so good, not livery at all. It's delicious. So after I tried Belcampo, I've tried a bunch of their stuff. I couldn't share ButcherBox anymore. 
And so you'll notice as of November 8th on the podcast, I'm now promoting Belcampo as my preferred source of animal protein instead of ButcherBox. Now, if you are using ButcherBox and you love them and that's all good, you live your life, you live your truth, that's totally fine. However, if you're looking for an alternative, Belcampo is amazing. And I will share notes and links and resources and all those things in today's show notes. You can check those out. You can catch up on previous podcast episodes and notes from today's show by going to ketodietpodcast.com. If you have any of my books, uh, The Keto Diet, The Keto Diet Cookbook, or Keto for Women, please leave a review. It's close to holiday season. People are buying books for their friends and family, and it really helps when there are reviews on there. And oh man, I wasn't the best at asking for reviews last year when my two books came out back to back. I was so tired. <laughs> if you have questions about today's content, you can head on over to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact and ask me. And today's episode is sponsored by my friends over at Perfect Keto. They're amazing humans too. Oh, I'm just surrounded but with such amazingly passionate, wonderful humans. You can find out more about Perfect Keto by going to perfectketo.com slash KDP. When you use the coupon code KDP, you get 20% off everything. 20% off everything in your cart, plus free shipping and a free nut butter when you order $80 or more, which is never hard to do on Perfect Keto. My cart is always at least $150. Those keto bars, they are life. Don't ask me how to eat less than three. I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> and um, that code is good until the end of the year to get the free nut butter. So again, that's perfectketo.com slash KDP. Okay, I've chatted way too long. Let's just get to today's interview and I hope you really enjoy it. Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel and you're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've put together a free 21-page guide on achieving weight loss on your keto diet if nothing is working as a little thank you for being here today. Grab your free guide at ketoforwomen.com to get the steps you need to overcome the hurdles standing in your way. Hi, Anya. How are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. I'm so happy to have you here on the show today. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I've done your bio and done all the professional introductions, but I'd love to hear how you got interested in this work and what the shift was like for you. So I've worked in animal agriculture my whole career. Um, and I, I got into it initially just out of a passion for cooking and good food. And then discovered through that, that it's really also about health and wellness for myself. So I moved to Europe right after college and I worked as a cheesemaker. And in doing that, I shifted to an extremely, what I think would now be called like ancestral diet. Um, and this is back in 99, 98, 99. So before it was still in the height of kind of low fat and no fat. And so I moved to Europe and I started eating a very, very high fat, mostly animal protein diet and had a real health um, shift for myself personally. So as a teenager and college student, I had been a serious athlete, but also kind of dabbled with being a vegetarian on and off and a vegan for a while. And I, when I started working in dairies, I got into that actually because I'd been baking bread. And then I started to make buttermilk and things and then got interested in cheese making and then decided to pursue making cheese. And that's what brought me to Europe and brought me to living on farms and working there in the late 90s and early 2000s. And in that time, I my health just radically improved. Um, and I noticed like a million things for me that were different. Like I, I used to get canker sores. I got frequent 
UTIs and yeast infections. I had really um, very dry skin, like my my skin on my legs would always flake off, and I would be visibly very self conscious about it. I had a lot of cavities, like I had a, a lot of things that just disappeared, and I didn't really. And I also had issues with mood. I had been, you know, diagnosed as being ADHD in college. And I had not really pursued much of a route of like medicating that because I didn't believe in it, but I struggled with mood and attention. And a lot of these problems just kind of went away. (laughs) And I, after, it was a funny thing because it was kind of like intuitive for myself where I was just like, you know what? I don't want to go back. Right. That's what I told myself at the time. Like, I don't, I don't want to go back. And at the time it was like, because whatever my, you know, this is fun or I'm learning still or whatever the story I told myself at the time was different than in retrospect, looking back, it's like everything in my life got better. And a lot of it was related to a bunch of kind of like lifestyle shifts, primarily around diet. And then also to some degree activity um, and some traditional practices, like I was getting up early and looking at the sun, I was moving throughout the day. So things that kind of calmed me and made me a lot healthier, um, layered on top of this like very high fat, high protein diet. Mm-hmm. So I stayed there for seven years. And in that time kind of adopted what I would call today a keto diet. And then as I when I returned back to the States, I really struggled with uh, the quality of protein that I was able to get. And so I said the genesis for me of Belcampo, my company was in my own, you know, it really started from, there's a lot of additional steps beyond this, but the initial kind of motivation for myself was around my first experimentation in the meat industry was sourcing high quality meat for myself. And getting up early and looking at the sun, something that I've done for the last couple of years and man, does it make a difference? Like it feels so good. And when you were, when you were doing this stuff overseas and, you know, shifting things was, did you tie it all together that what I'm eating is actually shifting things or did it take you a while? Funny, you know, the weirdest thing about it and the biggest piece was like the mood thing. I remember saying, because you know, I had struggled with depression in college, and I went to school. I'm from California. I went to school in Connecticut, and it's grayer there. And I'm like, I have seasonal affective disorder, you know. But that was like in the '90s. Everything was hyper. What's the right word? Like medicalized, you know. Like mm-hmm. so, it's like just like the trends, you know. I, I but I struggled with so many, and I felt like I was going to be end up on antidepressants throughout my whole life, you know, like all these things that. And my mother was on antidepressants, and I remember being like, Oh my god, I'm going to be like her and, and, um, this is a genetic thing and I can't escape it. And then it was like, Oh, (laughs) I'm doing great. You know? And I just remember like a year in being like, it hasn't, the thought of being down has like not even crossed my mind. And I'm not saying that I wasn't struggling. I mean, it was hard there. I was alone. I learned a new language. I was working, you know, I was a young woman living in working in rural Italy. Like it was, you know, it was a very, there were things that were challenging about it, but there, none of this sort of like this base level stuff was all so much better. And I remember also going home to my regular dentist and then being like, we, you know, those like three or four cavities that we said you had to fill next time you came in, they're not there anymore. And that was, whoa. And, you know, I did in that time, I learned actually about Weston A. Price and I, I sort of connected the dots a little bit, but it took coming back to the U.S. and then my health kind of falling back off the wagon right? And then getting that sorted out again, that I finally was like, oh yeah, this is, this is the deal. Because when I moved back, I, it was in 2000, end of 2005, early 2006, I just dove back into American life and gained, you know, 40 pounds and 
it started to feel, you know, I started to struggle again. And I then kind of, that, that was my initial interest in meat. I started to source my own meat, set up a meat CSA to be able to buy and distribute it at, you know, at a very small scale so I could get my hands on high quality protein like what I was used to eating. And then after about three years, got my health back to where it was. And it was like, okay, that point, this is, this is a lifestyle shift. And I had to really articulate it to myself as like a set of decisions I was making, as opposed to just, I was living in Italy and there's all these great things about living in Italy, right. That were making me happy. Right. And that point I realized like, no, this isn't, this isn't a time and place thing. This is a really specific nutritional protocol that you do very well on. Yeah, that's wonderful. And once you started gaining the weight back, I would imagine, you know, the the pieces start fitting into the puzzle and you're like, oh my gosh, it's food quality. And then was there anger around that of why can't, why doesn't everyone have access to these products or why is it so challenging to find quality? This will sound ironic given that I run kind of pretty high-end meat company now, but you know, when I came back to the US, my business, the first business that I ran and started here was a produce business that connected very high quality farms with low income buyers. So I was in the trenches fighting that fight and I was working in communities like Watsonville and Fresno, which if you're familiar with California are very disenfranchised, very low income, um, primarily new immigrant communities. And I was setting up programs for organic vegetables and fruits for their school lunches and fighting this very, very hands-on fight. And I did that for two years. We ended up selling that business, but it was basically like a a social venture, you know, a nonprofit, for-profit hybrid. And and it was about my my concerns about justice, you know, and, and really trying to figure out how do I connect this high quality food with people that need it the most in, in the ironic thing is like in agricultural communities, you can't get that right. Like the people that live closest to agriculture here in California are the most health compromised, like are the most health compromised. It's amazing too. In COVID look at what's happening in COVID, you know, the communities where it's hitting the hardest, they're the agricultural communities. Cause these are the communities that have five times the normal prevalence of asthma. They have higher um, obesity prevalence rates, right? So like all these negative, and it's unsurprising, like we have an obesogenic agriculture system and the people who live closest to that fire are burned the hardest, right? They're producing the food and they've got the worst health, health outcomes, unsurprisingly. So there's a, so in my early career, I worked in that system and I was like committed to being an agent of change to help the most disenfranchised. But I, I'll say proudly that I gave up. And the reason I gave up is that there was a systemic issue with subsidies in America that prevented any meaningful change. And when I acknowledge that for myself, I realized like there's no amount of, ch- of advocacy I can do for these communities that's going to make a change. There has to be a governmental shift in subsidies and the way these programs are structured around food aid. So unfortunately, I... And I actually think fortunately for myself, right, I decided to say, instead of trying to push for change from the bottom, I want to be a North Star and create a different model that people can move towards. And that was a hard thing. And I've gotten criticism in in my community from that, you know, decision, because now I sell pretty expensive meat, right? And is it pretty expensive compared to the market? Well, I mean, you know, our chickens are expensive or our, our, our ground beef is $12 a pound, between nine and $12 a pound. Okay. So these are more premium than a conventional product. Our chickens can be, you know, 23 to $30. People say that's so crazy. But what I say is like, well, that's a chicken that will feed four people for three meals if you do it right. And I'm committed to educating you about how to do that. But I feel like the way to create change is to create a positive model that people can move towards 
as opposed to trying to eke out something on the margins of the subsidy system, the corruption, the confusion of how the American food system is built and subsidized. So I, I had to kind of create an end run. Um, and it was a different way of going at the problem. It's both about systemic change, but the way that I'm doing it now feels like it has the potential for real change. Mm, beautiful. And as you're as you're creating this North Star and you've kind of shifted your priorities, at that point, did you know practices of farming, specifically animal proteins? Like was there, I guess a lot of people don't, I mean, you see the vegan documentaries saying all the animals are treated unfairly, but can you paint a picture for us on what it looks like between farming the way that you found that North Star of this is how I want things to look, as opposed to what's happening now in America? Absolutely. The premise of it is Regenerative, regenerative agriculture. Okay, and regenerative means agriculture that enhances the fertility of the soil and the earth, as opposed to being extractive. And in animal agriculture, regenerative means that you're actually using the livestock to enhance the fertility of the soil. Now, practically, the difference between our system and their system, the 99% of American ag, is I think some stats would really make it clear, which is in the case of beef, our animals come to a market weight at about 25, 26 months. In conventional, it's 16, 17 months. So a much, much more compressed lifestyle. The, in a conventional system, they'll typically have access to about 15 square feet in a feedlot environment after they come out of a stalker operation, which might be outdoors, but also very condensed. In our operation, they have access to about three acres per beef. Okay, so very meaningful differences in access. In beef, our animals are 100% grass-fed and finished. So these are ruminants, okay? So they, they eat grass. But imagine for ourselves, if you were to imagine, say you wanted to gain 10 pounds and you were to do it by walking around a garden eating seasonal greens compared to eating a big bag of Fritos, right? What's going to be fat? It's going to be really hard to do it walking around eating those greens, that's the equivalent of the operation that we're building for our beef, right? So, so the beef fattening operation, which is a feedlot, they're fed what's called a maladaptive. So that means a diet that actually doesn't work for them. And an, an analogous thing for a human would be if you were to try to thrive eating mostly grass, right? It's, you're not designed for that. You have a, you're a monogastric. You have one single uh, intestinal tract that's um, designed and evolved to eat nutrient-dense foods, like meat, some greens, et cetera. Cows are different. Cows have five big stomachs that are designed to take really low value food of grasses and high fiber, nutrient poor foods, right? And convert them into, into nutrition. So they have these five stomachs that take this really rough high fiber food and convert it into calories. They need five stomachs to do it. So it's essentially like a degradation process because it's so low nutrient. Monogastrics like humans and pigs and chickens are can they, they actually can't handle that. It'll make you know if you were to eat grass, you'd be very ill. So there's an there's a kind of counterpoint with beef where if they eat nutrient dense foods like mostly seeds, they are also very sick. Okay, so they're fed, but they effectively have a high calorie density, much higher than they're designed to to, to handle, and they have a strong inflammatory response, right? So they're going through basically an obesogenic environment. They're fed a maladaptive food that makes them inflamed. They're going to puff up and gain weight very, very quickly. Now, in beef cattle in America, you have an industry that has been extremely, extremely efficient. And that's what I need to call out is that 
the system produces extremely inexpensive meat, right? And that's really what it's excellent at doing. And in, in America too, our meat industry, we actually throw away about 40% of the meat that we produce. So we've designed a system that produces abundant, cheap protein, so cheap that we sort of no longer value it, right? And our system is designed to produce high value protein, right? And do it in a very traditional, slow growing way. So if I've spoken about beef a bit, for chickens, I, that's even more kind of dramatic, I think. Our chickens take 10 weeks to come to maturity. The same breed, we raise a Cornish cross, which is the same as like what a Tyson does, is at two and a half weeks in conventional egg. The thing that's really amazing to me about that is that our beef operation, okay, we're feeding 100% grass, they're feeding corn, which is high sugar and super different for the body, right? In the chicken operations, we're actually both feeding them corn, okay? We're not, we use it, I mean, chickens are monogastric, they, they thrive on grains, they'll eat a little bit of grass, but they're not going to do well on a mostly grass um, or forage diet. So you have, an, in, in, in a Tyson farm, you have the same breed and the same kind of category of feed, yet it, it takes one quarter of the time to come to weight. And that has to do with prophylactic antibiotics, which increase weight gain and it create an inflammatory response, and it has to do with stress. So the animals are kept in these confinement hoop houses where there's literally thousands of thousands of birds. They're de-beaked, so their beaks are cut off because they're under so much stress that if they have their full beaks, they will peck each other to death as a stress response. And they're kept in the dark, and they're just you know running around in their own feces effectively, eating a slurry of grains because they don't have beaks. So they kind of give them a slurry that they can lick up with their little tongues. It's a horrific environment. And I'd say if you would like to be an agent of change in animal agriculture, start with your chicken. Because <laughs> that's like, I actually think, you know, I think especially American women, we eat so much chicken and we don't realize like they, and I also think this is where I can be kind of woo, but there's a little bit of like an energetic transfer. You know, I look at the prevalence of anxiety related diseases in women in America, which are super, super high. And it's like, we eat all this super stressed out chicken. These animals are puffed up. Have you had experience with chicken where like you eat it and then it's almost like there's like a granular kind of thing. Yes. I've had that. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> That's fast growing protein. So fast growing protein has very low solubility. So if you're trying to, then the other thing you notice, like when you, when you take your chicken and you cook it and then that kind of whitish looking liquid comes up. Okay, that's actually the chlorine bath that these chickens are dunked in after slaughter. So I'm just saying there's a lot of signs when you look at chicken um, and it's like, it's, it's very white, it's flaccid, it's puffy. It's a super inflamed, very, very poor quality protein. I mean, honestly, I'm mostly carnivore myself, but I would eat a plate of vegetables any day over a confinement chicken. I simply will not put it in my body. I think it's toxic for me. And I also just the impact of my choices on the environment is is so, so bad when I make that choice. So I'm, I'm really a big fan. If you're going to start with any shift in your protein, look for a pastured free range chicken that's locally sourced and um, look for a grass fed and finished beef to start with. If you've been doing keto for a while, you know about Perfect Keto. They are a household name. If you haven't tried them yet, you must. My most favorite thing about Perfect Keto is their bars. They are delicious, 100% real food. There's no funky ingredients. And the coolest thing is that they are giving us all 20% off everything, plus free shipping and a free nut butter on orders over $80 or more. 
You can use the code KDP at checkout for your 20% off everything, plus free shipping and your free nut butter on your order of $80 or more. It is very easy to spend $80 or more on Perfect Keto. Now you can go to perfectketo.com slash KDP, load up your cart. If you're unsure of what to get, just hit me up on Instagram at Leanne Vogel, and I will happily tell you which ones are my favorite. Now this free nut butter will only last until supplies last probably through till the end of December. So if you're thinking that you want that free nut butter, who doesn't want free keto nut butter, head on over to perfectketo.com slash KDP, load up your cart, use KDP coupon code and get 20% off everything plus free shipping and your free nut butter. Enjoy. Uh, There are so many things you said where my mouth just dropped open. I mean, I know of a couple products that I've purchased, which I thought were safe. And I made chicken the other day, actually. And I'm like, oh, this white stuff, because I'm originally from Canada. And our, our access to animal proteins is very different than America, um, where you can get really, really high quality products pretty easily. There are multiple farmers just down the way from a lot of places, whether you're in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, BC, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, across the whole country, you can find good quality meat fairly easily. And here in America, it's been very hard to find Mm -hmm. good quality. And even when you buy good quality, it's still like, I bought grass fed, grass finished beef the other day and I cooked it. And in Canada, when we cook our grass fed, grass finished beef, it's been on fermented grass because it's winter and they don't have grass. Mm -hmm. And when you cook it, it's so bright. And the and the fat is yellow and it's beautiful. And here it's not that. <laughs> so they, that they bring up a lot of questions too, which is like, when you look at the product, how is it different? And yeah. that's something that kills me too, is I, I feel like I, I fight an uphill battle because the quality of some of the free range and pastured stuff that's available is so poor. And, um, and you know, this is, a lot of people have experiences with grass-fed beef tasting livery, right? Or being extremely lean or having dark spots on it, right? Those are all, I mean, I can speak to what those come from, but typically they're from animals that are harvested too young and then experience stress during harvest. Well, there's some really good reasons why that happens, right? Grass-fed and finished operators tend to be smaller. They tend to be small holdings that maybe if there's a cash flow issue, you know, or they need to repair a tack tractor or they find a buyer, they're going to be harvesting animals at, you know, 19 months or something, which on grass is not going to be a finished animal. And when you have an unfinished animal, that's when you get more of those kind of like livery off flavors. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we have our own slaughterhouse. We built our own USDA slaughterhouse. So all our animals are killed in our own plant, but many grass fed operations or small holders are, are processing in huge industrial plants. And when you process in a huge industrial plant, you know, in our plant, we kill 50 beef in a day. That's a really big day. In a conventional plant, they'll be doing um, 600 in an hour, I've heard um, at times. And so you're talking just order of magnitude. If you're able to get your animals slotted into that plant, imagine how they're going to be treated. Okay. So if you're processing, you know, what takes us a day in a conventional big plant could take 20 minutes, but it's all mechanized and it's much higher stress. So there's some reasons. And also, you know, those animals are being trucked a long time. We truck our animals 20 minutes to to slaughter. So these are all stress factors um, for the animal. 
So unfortunately, many grass fed and finished operators are constrained by economics to harvest a little too young. And they're constrained by the realities of infrastructure to kill um, in plants where they're just not given much consideration and they're often far away. You know, one crazy stat is that pork in America is typically trucked five days to slaughter. What? So when you talk about the difference in Canada, I know from just a generalist understanding of that system that there's just, there are more small slaughterhouses too. So you have farmers have access to high quality, small scale slaughter makes a huge difference. That's incredible. So how as a consumer am I supposed to know until I bring the chicken home and I cook the chicken and then all that white stuff comes out and I'm like, ah, shoot, like how am I supposed to know know. what's safe, what's not (laughs) because the labels say stuff, but I can't trust the labels because I take home grass-fed, grass-finished beef and it's dull and it does have that liver taste. It's disgusting. So how do we, how do we know what to do? Well, so with, I mean, First off, it's difficult in the grocery store to find great products. And I think grocery, there are some, like we're partnered with two grocery stores that are buying our products and doing direct distribution. But typically, you know, if, if I'm selling my beef at $12 and I'm selling it to the grocery store at six, right? So, the, the, you know, they're, they're typically going to almost double the price. But if I am selling into a chain of grocery stores, I have to add in two more people. I have to add in a distributor and a broker. So at that point, you're almost tripling the price, right? And I can't charge $18 for a pound of beef, right? Like that's just, that's, that's not going to happen. But if I need to make $6 at the firm gate, that's what's going to happen if I sell to a distributor. So there's a big problem with the grocery model. And getting into that question for my company has really kind of made my eyes open up to what it means to shop at a grocery store. You know, so often you hear like, oh, that brand used to be so dope and so great. And then they got greedy and did this. And it's like, well, actually they were probably not making money in the grocery stores initially. And they probably got acquired by somebody who's like, cool, let's make this profitable. And the only way to make it profitable is to gut the quality of the ingredients in the current model, right? That's the reality of what happens to many small high quality brands. In our case, we only work with with retailers that we distribute to directly so that we don't have to sell through a distributor so that we can keep our margin. But there's not that many people we can do that with, right? So we're actually talking to some bigger retailers now and it's always like, like okay, well, are you willing to buy direct? Because if, if I have to add in another, if I have to take, you know, I can't take my price down to $4 so that I can hit a $12 price point in the grocery store because that means that I'm just literally losing $2 in every package of beef. So that's a big problem with a grocery store. So I'd say one piece is like, look for the grocery store that's buying direct, right? That you can see has like unique stuff from a local farm or look at buying direct from farms. I mean, we do now a really robust business direct at bookcampo.com. We sell, you know, 75 different cuts and launching a whole range of like seasoned meats. So we have a whole butcher shop with seven species on our website. And there's probably one near you as well, right? So that's a big option, I think, is to just find ways to buy direct, buy at a farm stand, buy at a CSA, or buy from a company like Belcampo and and get it delivered. Because that's the only way that smaller operators can actually make money uh, by selling direct. If you do have a really great grocery store, so we work with Airwan in Southern California and Met Market in um, the Seattle, Washington area, both of those grocery stores buy direct. There's dozens of grocery stores like that around the country, right, that are buying direct then what you can look for when you're in that grocery store is for chicken, I want to see it air chilled. Okay. Air chilled means no dunking in a chlorine bath. Dunking in a chlorine bath after processing increases the weight by about 20%. 
and chickens are sold by weight, so it's convenient. The animal goes through rigor mortis right after processing, so it'll it'll absorb a lot of that in the way that your body absorbs uh, water into a bruise. You know, you've puffed up, right? So right after any traumatic event, musculature will, will absorb water. So the chickens will puff up, but that's not really, that's part of why they do it. The other reason is that, you know, chickens in processing, there's a lot a high risk of fecal contamination because of the layout of the bird and the size of it. Um, and then these are automated processing. So dunking it in, in bleach is kind of a reduces the risk factors. That said, even with that, half of American chickens are contaminated with fecal matter from chickens, despite the bleach bath. Okay, so from a food safety perspective, I mean, one thing I love is that like, I'm not afraid about my kids touching the chicken in my house. That's like we test every day for everything and we don't have any tests. Like we, we, we were doing a slow, careful job and the product's super high quality. So there's some other nice benefits in terms of food safety that you're going to find when you're buying direct. But so in that, on that label, I want to see air chilled for the chicken. I want to see the word pastured, not just free range because free range legally means they have access to pasture, but that can be a small door in a hoop house. Okay. So pastured means that they have to spend the majority of their life outside that pasture. Big difference. That's what slows weight gain down, right? And that actually contributes to that like nice athletic musculature. Like I want to see a pinkish reddish bird. I want to see it in an athletic shape, right? That's going to be coming from, from the, the truly pastured. And then I'm always looking for organic. Though honestly, from my perspective, pastured trumps organic. It's more meaningful, you know, in terms of the actual health of the protein, it's more meaningful. So again, for chicken, it's number one uh, is going to be pastured. Number two is air chilled. Number three is organic. And then I'm looking as well for a farm and everybody's got their phone with them when they're shopping, right? Go to the website, like use your intuition. Just be like, does this look like a real farm? You know, or is this like a farm? Like there's, there's a very famous beef farm. That's something farms LLC. I won't say their name. That's actually just a, you know, it's a really well-known brand and it's just a packing house. So they're just buying from feedlots, right? So, so noodle around on the website, look at their Wikipedia page, find out if there's a real farm associated with it. Use your phone, empower yourself, get some data on it. That'd be my recommendation for chicken. For beef, I'd also look for, um, you know, the, the pasture or free range. In that case for beef, the meaning is more meaningful for beef than it is for chicken. The definition of free range grass-fed and grass-finished. That's very, very crucial. For your health, if you take a beef off of grass for two weeks at the end of its life, so people are like, oh yeah, we just put a little bit of barley in at the end of the ration. I've done the tests on that product, that barley finish for two weeks. It's just a little bit of barley, just helps the musculature, blah, 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 blah. Totally changes the omega-3 to 6 ratio. I've documented this my, my, with our own third party. And then there's good research out of Chico State, which is a great ag school here in California that shows the same thing. Like just like a week on a corn or barley diet will radically change the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, taking your beautiful grass-fed beef and making it inflammatory with omega-6s. So look for 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. Again, look for a farm. Organic is fantastic. If you can get organic, do it. And definitely they're looking again for the name of a farm, right? Um, so those are the key ones. And then I'd say for, for pork uh, also, in that case, pork pastured is really optimal. There's no pastured pork you can find in any conventional grocery store, unfortunately. It's very expensive and hard to do. Um, so that's something you're going to need to be buying, likely buying direct from an operation like Belcampo or, or another um, local farm. 
Such great tools and suggestions on what to look for. That's just wonderful. And you chatted a little bit about organic. I'd love, and also you said like, if, and I do the same thing. If I'm out with friends and I don't know the quality of the meat, sometimes I'll just go with vegetables. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know this, this, I had chicken actually a couple months ago and it was like chewing a piece of rubber. It was the grossest thing. I'd never had this before. And the chef was like, no, 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 it's normal. I'm like, this is not, no, this is what happened to this dear little chicken. <laughs> like, yeah. It's um, fast growing. Yeah. It's actually in extremists. It's a, you can Google it. It's a, it's a characteristic called woody breast syndrome, um, which is documented because consumers will be like, there's a piece of wood in my chicken. It's actually, no, that's the nature of the protein when it grows extremely rapid. I mean, keep in mind, this goes from being a chick, which weighs what, like four ounces to being a two and a half to three pound bird in two weeks, That's you know, two weeks. Like it's, and so that, that extremely fast growing protein um, is, is where you get that, what, what we call low solubility. So solubility is I want, and this is the thing I obsess about in our meat in Belcampo's product. It's like, I'm always tasting for solubility. I want to chew it and then have nothing left, but like kind of that little residual flavor of the fat in my mouth, but I want to have no residual granularity in my palate. And that's very typical of slow growing meat. I forget what that tastes like. <laughs> I'm shipping you a box. Feeling. I'm shipping you a box. <laughs> I forget that feeling. Um, so you mentioned organic and I'd love to kind of pick your brain on why organic, you know, because a lot of people say it's not worth being organic and what's the big deal about organic. It doesn't make a difference. Uh, can you yeah. comment on that? Yeah. I mean, organic is complex, right? Because one thing I say about, or think like as an analogy is when, when farmers say, yeah, I'm, I'm organic. I just don't do this certification. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. I don't, I pay my taxes. I just, I just don't file my 1040. You know, it's like, okay, I trust you. But like, it's sort of the same thing, right? So all organic is, is documenting. And the costs are not that high. It's about $2,500 a year. So when people say it's extremely expensive, it's not that expensive. But the thing that, that the actual, that's the cost of getting the dude, like the certifier to come to your firm. But what's expensive is the record keeping. So the record keeping associated with maintaining organic certification is a lot for small, small operations. So I have, I totally understand if people are, you know, tiny, tiny shoestring operations, but broadly, it's kind of like the tax analogy here. The diligence associated with just keeping your paperwork together is something that's good for the operation in general, you know? So organic, okay, we're in a pretty privileged position. You know, we're a 30,000 acre farm. We have, you know, big team, 30 plus people on the farm team, right? It's, it's a significant size operation. So we've got the manpower to handle the certifications. But I think for, you know, for a consumer to think about, to me, it's a, it's a very good indicator of just kind of rigor on the part of the farmer in general and on the supply chain. And especially in a system like the U.S. where there's very little mandates for us around traceability um, or record keeping in farming or in general practices, it's, it's a good thing to have. Now, what you shouldn't be thinking organic tells you is anything about environmental sustainability or anything about humane treatment of animals, okay? Most organic milk is produced in feedlots. It's organic corn that's fed to the cows. You know, most organic chicken is produced in extreme confinement environments. It's not that dissimilar from a conventional chicken um, because there's, the density requirements are not meaningful. So if you're looking for, like, to me, I think the best 
system for animal agriculture is animal wellness in support of human wellness. I don't think we can have true human wellness on an individual or societal level without animal wellness as part of that system. So if you're looking for an indicator of animal wellness, organic is not it. What it is going to tell you is better diligence, better record keeping, and no use of petroleum-based chemicals in agriculture, which is a good thing, right? When you're not putting gas in your crops, it's probably better for the environment. So there are some good aspects to it, but it isn't the whole picture. So I'm always looking for organic plus. Um, the, something you know that we use a lot is the word regenerative, right? And that's something that is pretty niche right now, but I think it's going to enter into the mainstream. We're looking for practices that are actively increasing organic matter in the soil and soil health and fertility. That's better and bigger than organic in my mind, you know, but that's not a word that's very commonplace and it's not certified yet. It's a claim. So I put that on my packages and I have to explain to the government why I'm using that word and I document it and they say, okay, you're doing that, right? So it's a verified claim, but it's not a certification, right? So there's, it's really organic is the, is the starting point, I think, and you should be looking for organic plus some other claims. And then again, if you're, you know, looking truly at animal wellness, the word pastured for your monogastrics, which is your, your pigs and your chickens, commonly consumed pigs and chickens, the word pastured is more important to me than organic. In beef and lamb, which are commonly consumed ruminants, I'm looking for grass-fed and finished, and that is more important to me than organic. If I was given a choice between a grass-fed and finished steak and an organic steak, I'm going to choose a grass-fed and finished all day long because there's plenty of organic feedlot meat out there, right? So there's, some, there's, a, there's a hierarchy in this, and organic's part of the picture, but it's not the whole solution. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. You can snap a pic and tag me at Leanne Vogel or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff. And you mentioned really taking that free range. I guess it's a free range system versus a conventional system. Would you say it's like a free, what, what kind of system are we talking about? Well, regenerative is the word that I use, right? And another word that you might say is just traditional. Um, so it's a traditional way of raising animals, which is they're raised in, according, in accordance to their natural evolutionary diet. Mm. So a regenerative and free range system. And um, then, you know, the other pieces that you want to be keeping an eye out for is just traceability to the farm. Like just from a basic nuts and bolts, my kids got sick kind of question mark, right? In that case, I would certainly rather be able to trace it to a farm than trace it to ConAgra, right? Just in terms of risk mitigation. Or, you know, if somebody else's kid got sick, that they can trace it to a farm and not to ConAgra so I can make some better choices, right? So they, they you know, you need to realize that when you're buying from the system, right, when you're buying from the commodity meat pool, you're getting a great price. You're getting the best price in the world, but it's at a cost and the cost is traceability, right? So they're aggregating meat. You know, the average McDonald's hamburger has beef from 100 cows in it. It's been verified by DNA testing, 100 different cows in that hamburger. What? You, yeah. <laughs> I can't so, even believe this. 100 cows, right? Wow. So that's an extreme example of the effective aggregation. And that's a damn cheap burger, right? And then the big secret price tag is like, if you were to, God forbid, get sick, you will get a liability check. You will not get any traceability. And the risk of that disease impacting other people or people having that same exposure is again, going to be controlled through a liability process, right? So you've seen that and you read it in the newspaper, like, oh, there's a salmonella outbreak and it's like been traced to one of three slaughterhouses, right? 
And then those in turn connect to eight feedlots. There's never like there's this one person that something happened with, right? So you have then three slaughterhouses and eight feedlots that get shut down for a week or two. Everybody who's impacted gets a check, right? And we move on. But there's no traceability to an origin point that then can be rectified. And that's really the, that's the great trade-off. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch and there's no such thing as truly cheap meat. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. In regards to the environment, you know, having more of a regenerative system, can you tell a little bit about how this impacts the environment versus, you know, conventional agriculture and how it could impact the environment? Totally. I mean, first of all, say everything that the impossible meats and beyond meats of the world say about conventional agriculture is true, right? The water usage, the beef, the scary diagrams, the methane, all that stuff is broadly correct. Some of it's been inflated and kind of manipulated, but broadly what they're saying is accurate, which is that, you know, confinement beef in particular and chicken and pork close behind it are some of the worst actors in terms of environmental degradation. And the kind of like, I think about it, like I have little kids and my son likes to pee in the yard, right? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You can pee in the yard. It's fine. But if my son was to all of a sudden to stick a kiddie pool and pee in that every day, it would be pretty disgusting pretty fast. Right. So that's the, that's the sort of the very, very high level version of what's gross about confinement agriculture is that you have all the effluents associated with these animals all in one big pool. And that's really bad. Right. So there's one big issue there. Second big issue. They're being fed crops that are human food crops that are subsidized, so artificially cheap. And these crops are produced in ways that are bad for the environment with lots of nitrogen-based fertilizers. And lots of, you know, the crazy thing about subsidies to think about it, if you were to take a cow and put it out on three acres of reasonably green grass and let it hang out there for two years, it will get to a weight that's suitable for processing, okay? If in the conventional system, you take a crop of corn, you have to farm that crop and spray it with glyphosate and do all the different things you do in conventional ag. So tractors and mowing and um, spraying with pesticides and then harvesting, and then it has to be cleaned and then it has to be trucked somewhere and then put into a bucket and fed to a cow that's on cement in confinement. And that latter system is cheaper than the, just putting it out on a patch of grass. And that's a head scratcher, right? Like there's like so many different ways that tractors and gas and stuff has, people have to be involved in the latter system, <laughs> but it's still way cheaper. And that's because of subsidies because the corn is subsidized and the feed inputs are subsidized. So in terms of the broad impact and that's the second point of like, so first off is, is that, you know, the, the actual effluent concentration. The second thing is they're being fed a crop that is bad for the environment, right? And the third issue is just the actual nature of the confinement and the fact that antibiotics are extremely like prevalent. And even though companies like Tyson will say that they do not use prophylactic antibiotics, which means that they don't just give the animals antibiotics without them being sick, that's actually been documented by various kind of vets, veterinarians from that system that have turned because they basically keep vets on payroll to continually diagnose the animals as at risk of being sick so that they can continually prescribe antibiotics. Antibiotics increase weight gain. This is something that you should know for yourself too. One and a half times the normal weight gain just by adding antibiotics, changing nothing else. 
So they rapidly increase because they basically suppress the microbiome, you know, so they, the microbiome is suppressed, you're less efficient at metabolizing and you have an inflammatory response. There you go. Um, so there's those three factors are really what makes confinement agriculture so bad for the environment. So the sad story is that livestock farming as it is now is indeed terrible for the environment. The good story is that it doesn't have to be right. There's another way of farming where the environment can be, you know, respected, enhanced, encouraged. And that's a traditional way of doing things. You know, animals and livestock has been part of human history and how we curate the earth and take care of the earth. You know, livestock farmers used to be thinking about, you know, this is going to be my, you know, five generations from now, my children will be farming this land. That's how people used to be about the land. And the style of farming evolved in that mentality. So it's a very different mindset than today. I have two last questions for you. The first, um, because keto folk, and you probably know too, we drink a lot of bone broth. You know, we like our organ meats. And mm -hmm. it's been very challenging for me to find good quality organ meats. And I make my own broth, but it's probably not from the best quality. Like I'm assuming, and I know, but let's set you up like this. I'm assuming that these products need to be very high quality because they are the potent extracts of these animals. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, my, my advice is if you're, you know, I don't taking Danny a steak every once in a while, it's corn finished. I wouldn't do it, but you could eating a liver that's corn fish. No way right? Because the, you know, livers handle inflammation, they're the filtration, right? For the animal bones and bone marrow are where heavy metals are going to be aggregated and cleaned out, right? So these are in animals that are in this like super immune compromised environment that is confinement farming. You have to be vigilant about organs. You really want to be eating organs and awful and extracting collagen and these long, slow simmer, which pulls everything out of the bone that's where you have to have the highest quality nutrition. It's also just, I'm always, one thing I love to do is just like look at the, a bone on our chickens compared to like a, just a generic organic chicken. And you can snap a generic organic chicken bone just like between two fingers, right? And our bones, the, you know, like they're serious. You can't snap them. And you can see that in in the, in the musculature and skeleton of all free range animals, it's a stronger animal. And so everything coming off that animal is going to be higher quality. Um, so I, I mean, we actually on our website, I cook most of my food in suet in rendered beef fat. I actually think, um, I mean, I like the flavor of it and I also, so tasty. It, it's so tasty. Eggs fried in suet with hot sauce on them are like the, oh. the but like yeah. the, you know, suet is also super economical, you know, like it's, you know, for a, a big jar of grass fed ghee, bomb, delicious, love it. But it's like 30 plus bucks to get organic ghee in a big jar of it, you know, a quart of it. Um, and with suet, you know, you can get that same amount of ghee for like the same of grass fed and finished beef fat for like six or $7, you know? So it's, and they have different uses and things, but that was one thing I was really excited with. I started rendering and cooking with suet when I was doing a pure carnivore protocol, which I kind of do like for a month, every four or five months. And so I, but I started that about a year ago. And I've just, it's incorporated into my everyday routine now too. And it's a lot cheaper. It tastes delicious. It's beautiful for a sear on things. It's amazing for deep frying. So like that kind of the, the, um, the, I love to experiment with those components of it, but I also know like the suet, what, you know, ours, it smells like grass, 
it smells very clean and our organs smell very clean. And I noticed that with people, I get, you know, comments of like, oh, I want to cook with suet, but it smells so bad. And I'm, you need to just get a different quality. It shouldn't smell bad. Liver should not smell bad. Liver should smell like a kind of like a, the way that a mushroom smells when you're frying it kind of like earthy, like a little, it can have some metallic kind of like deep flavors to it, but like fungal, should smell fungal and rich. It shouldn't, it shouldn't smell bad. Um, and suet should smell clean and grassy and beefy, but it shouldn't smell bad. So I get feedback from people following like my Instagram videos on how I cook. And they're like, I can't eat this because it smells so bad. And I'm, well, you need to start, the number one step is start with really clean sourcing, right? When you're doing to do any of that stuff, it matters way, way more. Yes, completely. And to go back to your, um, your North star, how do you want to see all of this change? Like if you could snap your fingers or wave your magic wand, what would you want to see America be when it comes to agriculture? I mean, it sort of starts from wellness. I think that health and wellness is the most important thing you control in your life. And I think with COVID we're seeing just how rough it is for so many Americans who don't have a handle on health and don't know how to make change in their health, right? So I think more people understanding that wellness is like the first step to having every day be close to awesome, right? That that's the first step. It's, you know, diet can improve mood. It can, can improve all your health outcomes. There's just, you know, diet related diseases are now the number one killer in the US. And we, you know, we have an obesity epidemic in our children, you know, so it's like, we're in a moment where we're out of control on the diet choices that we're making. So my number one dream would be that people start to take some steps towards owning this really important part of everyday life. And that's what I love about keto and carnivore is that people are cooking, they're paying attention to where things come from. And that's the, the first step. And the, the piece then I'd like to see from there is connecting animal wellness and human wellness, realizing we can't have one without the other and realizing that we can really kind of easily and affordably affect change. Yeah. Okay. My meat's $12 a pound for ground beef, but let's say you, you know, how much ground beef do you eat in, in a month? I mean, in general, this might be an incremental spend for you of like $200 a year. Right. And I, we're all spending, you know, $300 a month on our cell phones, you know, like there's sort of in the broader scheme of things of like, how do you prioritize stuff? Um, how do you prioritize your spend? Thinking about ways to spend more towards wellness supporting outcomes is, I, I just, I, I'm worried about the US. I'm worried about our lack of focus on our own health and wellness and needing to be, you know, warriors to tackle every day. And that I feel like we've gotten, um, as a culture, we're, we're soft and we're acquiescing and we're not fighting for health and we're not fighting for vitality. And I want to see that change. That is beautiful. And yet, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to have all of your links and resources, uh, including a link to Belcampo in the show notes. So if anyone wants to check out uh, your site, they definitely can. And um, thank you so much for coming on today. I know that I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did too. And we'll hook you up with a discount code as well as I'm going to send you a bunch of meat. Deal. Never <laughs> say no to meat, guys. <laughs> Thanks again. Awesome. Thank you. Wonderful, right? Right? Yeah.
So good. Next up on the podcast, Sunday, November 22nd, we have episode 282. Amy Satrazimus is coming on the show to chat with us about setting up your keto diet for health and weight loss success. And then on Sunday, November 29th, episode 283, Leah Williamson is coming on the show. We are discussing minimizing stress and optimizing fat burning. I'm so excited to chat with Leah again. Um, It's been a really long time and I think you're really going to enjoy that episode. So until Until then, have a beautiful day and I will see you soon. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, nutrition, and diet and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor should it be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.